Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 360. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 360 you're listening to. My guest today is studio owner, engineer, composer, and vocalist Brian Matheson. Brian is the man behind the Bay Area studio known as Skyline Studios. And I had the privilege of meeting him the other night when former WCA guest Rado Peter brought many of us together in the Bay Area for what Rado refers to an audio nerds night out, where we all basically convene on a bar and hang out with other audio people. So it was my first time meeting Brian, even though we both have been in the Bay Area audio world for quite some time. So really happy to have him on. Brian is a man of many talents and has worked for a ton of artists, companies. He's got a long list of clients that could easily fill multiple pages. So I won't go into that, but let's just say that he's been around the block before. That's the gist of it. Very excited to have Brian on, and I think you'll enjoy our conversation. Brian Matheson coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about using it or losing it. Recently, I headed over to one of my favorite studios in the Bay Area, 25th Street Recording. I was working with a band that I worked with 10 years ago. I did an album with them 10 years ago at my old studio in San Francisco. And recently they called me up and asked me to co-produce and mix a single with them. And if that went well, then we would probably do four other songs. We did a couple days worth of work here at my house where we uh, tweaked the arrangement and changed a few things uh, because most everything had already been recorded. We headed over to 25th Street to do vocal overdubs and a few drum and percussion type overdubs and get everything together and ready to mix. I love going over to 25th Street for a number of reasons. It's a great studio with a great staff, very pro. We occupied Studio B in this case. And what I love about going over there is I know that, you know, since we were doing vocals, I knew that I could count on having a U47 for the vocals, a great signal chain, a great control room to monitor in and plenty of space for everybody plus an ever-flowing pot of coffee i had an assistant and i had three members of the band there i had myself of course all occupying this space in studio b now you might ask well now you did the arrangement stuff at home and you mix at home so why didn't you just do the overdubs at home well you know we did it over the weekend number one so that means that my wife and my kids are home it's okay to have a few people here at our house but it's really great when you can just get out of the house and not have any distractions. I don't feel that tension between my professional life and my personal life intersecting. And when I'm at 25th Street or any other studio for that matter, I can focus 100%. And I can know that the infrastructure surrounding me is going to help me do my job, which means I can help the band accomplish their goals. Now, the use it or lose it part of this conversation happens when we decide that we're going to try to do everything at home all the time or on the cheap. And even if we do get projects with bigger budgets, like I have in this case, 
you know, many people's attitude is, well, I'm just going to pocket all the money so I can, you know, just do it at home or do it in my small space. I'm going to make a suggestion to you. You can take it or leave it. And you know me, I never like to push shit on you. I like to let you make those decisions. But from my perspective, what I see is a, is a vital part of any community, any musical community or any audio communities ecosystem is a fully functioning recording studio that we all can go to and get stuff done like this. Now, when you stop going there and you stop bringing the money there, those studios close. It's just like when you are driving down the street and you see, oh, look at that restaurant. Oh, that's that great restaurant everybody would always talk about, but I've never been there. And it closed. Or great record store, or clothing store, or shoe store, whatever it is, coffee shop. Any business that you think might be cool and useful to you, that you fail to go and patronize, the possibility exists for them to close. Because the mentality in our world of recording, it seems more so than ever, is to try to do things at home because of budget shrinking. And I totally get that. That's a valid, valid argument. However, if you don't have great recording studios in your area, then the quality of recording and the community aspect of that audio community goes down. So it is a short rant, and I've kind of already, you know, just given you all the information that you need to hear, I think. And that is, you use it or you lose it, friends. Recording studios are important parts of musical communities. They're just as important as venues and the bands that occupy them. So, when you're thinking about doing a project and there's a little money to go around and you want to step it up a notch, and maybe you want to go to a studio that's got a U47 or the infrastructure or the setup that you need to do what you need to do, as I found in 25th Street for this project, get the money flowing to them too. Because if the project turns out better and you can do your job better, ultimately that turns out a better situation for the artist that you're working with and hopefully will help that song reach a wider audience and potentially get you more work down the road. So remember, use it or lose it. Patronize your local studios and don't forget about them. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, 
check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Brian Matheson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You and I have been floating in and around around the Bay Area for many years without meeting each other. And we were, I think, in my opinion, we were fortunate to meet each other the other night. I've heard about you for a long time. I've known about Skyline Studios, but I'd never met you. I'd never been there. And fortunately, former WCA guest, Rado Peter, introduced us because he hosts an audio nerds night out event in our area. So we meet once a month at a place in uh, Oakland and have drinks and talk shop. So it was, it was great to meet you the other night. And I'm super glad that I could finally like put a name and face together. And, and now here you are. Yeah. Same with you. I've, you know, I've always heard about you and never really got to talk to you. So yeah. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Toronto. And then moved to New York when I was one, moved to Toronto when I was 19, and moved out here when I was 28. So yeah, I grew up in Tarrytown, New York, now called Sleepy Hollow, and then went to SUNY Binghamton in New York, studied liberal arts and some music, and then decided to take a gap year, and then moved to Toronto, worked in a music store for a little while, and then uh, got a gig and toured for about three and a half years after taking a gap year between my sophomore and junior year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the gap year turned out to be four years. (laughs) Then I went back to school in Canada and studied music full-time. And when did recording or production or any kind of studio-level ideas start to enter your head as something you wanted to do? My first clue was my summer job after my freshman year of university was, believe it or not, selling books (laughs) door-to-door. And the money I made, the first thing I bought was a TAC 2340 4-track machine and paid for university and stuff. But the whole idea of multi-tracking myself and, and or just recording my own music was something that was always forefront in my mind. Didn't think about it in terms of a career thing or anything like that. Moved to Canada. I get myself a Fostex 8-track, right? And I started working on my own songs as an artist, a singer and a guitar player and a songwriter. 
And I always played in bands and done some acting and always been a singer and always been a guitar player. And well, I came out to Oakland to visit and I had my A-track machine and I had been mixing down onto PCM beta. Remember those? Mm-hmm. Right? The ancestors to, to dab machines. And so I needed to find a studio that I could do some mix downs that had PCM beta that I could take my A-track to. So I'm in Leo's Pro Audio. Remember Leo's Pro Audio? I do remember Leo's Pro Audio. <laughs> and uh, I'm talking to a guy named Barry Schiffman. I said, hey, I'm looking for a place that I can mix down the stuff off my Fostex A-track. I need a PCM beta. He goes, oh, I got one of those in my studio. Oh, you got a studio? Yeah. What's your studio? It's called Skyline Studios. Okay. Well, let me book some time with you so I can mix down some stuff. So I went there as a client at Barry's studio, Skyline Studios, just working on my original material and stuff like that. Now, at that point, I was just playing in a band. That was my only job was I was working at night, gigging. And what was your instrument in the band? Guitar. Okay. And singer. That's what I'd always done. So I go into Skyline as a client. We get to be friends. He's got this band that he's doing these casuals and weddings and stuff like that. And so I joined the band and we did a whole bunch of gigs. Mm-hmm. And so my days were free. He was working at Leo's full time. So the studio was dark during the day and he would do sessions at night, right? Mm-hmm. At the studio. So I'm like, dude, my days are free. Why don't you uh, toss me some keys? Let me do some sessions for other people. Because you're down here all day long at Leo's and the studio's dark. Why don't you toss me a set of keys and, you know, maybe I can do some sessions. And he said, okay. I think I found an invoice in an old file cabinet that said my first session was uh, August 86, you know, as a paid engineer. And uh, so I started doing sessions there for other people producing and engineering and doing that kind of thing. So I was doing that during the day and then at night, still gigging. And little by little, the number of sessions I was doing in the day went up and the number of gigs I was doing at night went down. Mm. And, you know, I always had dreams of doing that. So this was working for me at that point. That was my first kind of entrance into being an engineer. I have to share this with the audience. You know, Leo's Pro Audio as a pro audio retail outlet was quite the institution and it was oh, around man. for a long time. And, and if those of you who live in the Bay area, just tracing the lineage of things, if I have it correct, Jeff Briss, who went on to audio images and cutting edge, yep. he came from Leo's pro audio. Then That's to right. audio I images, remember when he was there and then to cutting edge. And if you are a Bay area recording person, the, you know, Jeff, for example, is kind of like part of the old guard of, of pro audio sales and right. I think Leo's closed in, I can't remember the year, but I do remember going to see a show there after they converted it to a venue. Yeah. It was just such a, such a shocking thing to be in that building and thinking, right? wow, yeah. they used to sell recording gear here. Now it's a venue. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, and what happened, you know, Skyline Studios, when I first started working there or going there, was up on Joaquin Miller Road. It was way up below the entrance to Joaquin Miller Park, just a few doors down across the street in the basement of this house. And back at that time, Barry Schiffman's partner who owned the house, they were friends, and it was, he was the drummer in the same band we were playing in. Things were not going well in that space. His wife was harassing clients. If she didn't like what's going on, she shut off the power in the middle of a session. It was just hell. Wow. <laughs> okay. I had to find another space. And I was down talking to Barry one day at Leo's. And I come out of the studio, 
and I look up at the building next door and I see warehouse space available. Huh. I think to myself, Leo's Pro Audio, warehouse right next door to Leo's Pro Audio. Huh. This would be a good place for a recording studio. Yeah. <laughs> and so I call the guy, call the number on the, on the sign. He goes, how'd you get this number? Well, I read it off the sign. I put that up 10 minutes ago. I said, well, I'm interested. Are you still here? He goes, yeah, I'm still here. Can I see the space? Sure. So I, I come and look at the space. And the space at the time was this big, wide open brick space that had open skylights because they were just doing furniture refinishing in here. It was just a super fun site. Nasty. Just an environmental disaster. It was a super fun site. It was an environmental disaster when I saw it, yeah. you know, and, and it was just one big open space. And my first question was like, you know, can it be done? Can you put a studio here? There's a freeway right next door. I mean, the freeway is like right there. That's right. And BART. So the freeway and BART is right next door. And I was terrified of getting it wrong. But I did a lot of research and built separate rooms within a room that don't touch the brick superstructure of the shell. Just kind of went crazy and reinforced and really made it ultra soundproof. So I signed the lease. And uh, that was in spring of 93. And a few months later, by about November, I was doing sessions in here, in the new Skyline Studios. What kind of challenges did you encounter in building the studio? Not knowing what I was doing was the main thing, mm. right? But in the history of anybody who knows what they're doing, there was a time where they didn't know how to do it at all. And then they looked into it and figured it out. And when they first started doing it, they were terrible at it. And then <laughs> started to get a little bit better and just figure it out. And the information's out there, and I just researched of how you build a studio, you know, how you have non-parallel walls. And, I mean, the challenge was trying to figure out how to do this all by myself on a shoestring budget. I reached out to Chips Davis. I introduced myself and said, hey, listen, I got the space down here, and I was thinking about putting a studio here. Would you, next time you're passing through, I know, you know. And he came through. He looked at the space with me, and he started what was almost a two-hour lecture on acoustics. It was fascinating. I was taking notes as fast as I could. It was brilliant what I was getting, all this gold information on how you do it. I said, man, how much you design my studio? And he wanted this insane amount of money. I'm sure it was fair, but it was nothing I could afford. I said, okay, well, uh, how about just the front wall? It was also an insane amount of money I couldn't afford, although I'm sure it was fair. Okay, I can't do that either. Okay, how about I design it, and then I bring you my plans, and you check it on, in your computer for nodes, and you just check it and make sure it's okay. He goes, okay, I'll do that. He charged me sort of an hourly rate. And I brought it and he goes, oh, this is, this is good. You know, you got to do this and just made a few adjustments and you got to raise your ceiling another six inches. But I'm like, well, I can't. I, I got the sprinkler main right here. He goes, too bad, build around it. Otherwise, you're going to have nodes at 250 or something like that. So I did. Huge challenge, you know, getting all these, there's, there's no, there isn't a 90 degree angle in this whole place. And so framing that out in a practical sense is, is always a pain, and, but it, it worked out. Acoustically, it works out. So cost-wise at the time, we're talking, we're talking late 80s, right? 1993. And, and right around the time that I started to buy the wood, the price of wood skyrocketed. <laughs> so I'm like, holy crap. Of course. Right? But I hired a contractor, a friend of mine, to uh, help me do the framing. And then me and my buddies hung the rock and, you know, little by little. I'm down here working my butt off and then running up the hill and doing sessions to make the money so I'd come down here and, and pay for it. Luckily, right around that time, I, I wrote an ad campaign for Altabates Hospital, and that's what initially paid for the build-out. So the sessions you were doing at the original Skyline Studios in the house with the wife who was cutting the power off, 
Right. It sounds like you were doing a combination of music sessions, but also some corporate work like Ultimates Hospital. Yeah, I was doing a lot of ad work back then. Did all the Northern California Chevrolet music for a few years. And, you know, I got that out to Bates Hospital ad campaign and a bunch of other little things like that. Can we talk a little bit about that, about ad work? Because at that point in time, I bet the money was really flowing for ad work. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, not, not incredible money, but it was good. Helped me move out of the house and build a space. But one of the things I was getting a lot of work for was overdubbing myself, stacking my own vocals multi-track, you know, and getting ad work like that. So again, something like that, I did a big ad campaign for Chevron that ran in every 49er, Raider, A's, Giants, Warriors game for a year and a half. And that royalties were to help contribute to build out the studio and then eventually move it. Because you're not only getting paid for the work at the time as a studio, but as a performer. And then there right. was royalties musically on the back end of that. Yeah, and because I was doing the work myself, and was playing the instruments and then doing all the vocals. You know, I was producing it all there and engineering it all there. Wow. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. If you compare those times to today, how does that compare? How does it stack up? Well, it's been a long time since I've had to do multi-track harmonies of myself. I don't see that kind of worth. Advertising doesn't use jingles like they used to, right? So that stuff has kind of dried up, but other things have filled in to take the place. So back to the studio, how long did it take you to finish it from start to finish? I think April 93 is when I signed the lease. And then November 93 was, I think, my first session here. And... um I remember my first session. I didn't even have the glass between the control room and the vocal room. I was just like, just winging it. I remember I had a little Tascam board and I had an AKG C60 mic. I think that was like my only like good mic, you know, real humble beginnings, you know, real humble. And who were the clients? Was it a continuation of the ad clients? 
Well, yeah, a little, a little of the continuation of the act clients and, you know, rappers, singer-songwriters, and just bands and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, the early 90s Bay Area hip-hop scene. Yeah. Definitely growing at a rapid pace. Yes. Yeah. We did a lot of rap sessions, yeah. So, in the end, with your goals of keeping the, the sounds of the traffic out and, and BART trains out, were you successful? Oh, yeah. The room I'm in right now, it's so dead and so quiet that it's kind of creepy. You can hear your own, like, heartbeat, you know, the really super low noise floor. And back in the day, I mean, it's still the same room it's always been uh, in terms of the noise floor. Because, mm-hmm. like, I overbuilt, I mean, three-quarter ply, two layers of five-eighths rock on a structure that doesn't touch the brick. The heat pump is, like, 100 feet away and sound attenuating ducting to make sure that it's quiet. You would think that I'd get more voiceover ad work back then. But the advertising agencies, they weren't coming to Oakland back then. No. They'd stay in the financial district, and the studios had to look as good as the clothes they wore, is what somebody said to me once. And, uh, okay, that's why I'm not coming over the bridge, come to Oakland in my funky little studio. (laughs) That's right, because they could walk out their door in the financial district of San Francisco and walk down over to, what, battery-type area to... Right. Whatever studios were there. Yeah. At that time. And that's where they were going. And they weren't coming here. So because I had a specific relationship with this ad agency, that's where I was getting these gigs from, these commercials. But over the years, the evolution of the clientele has, it's evolved. I started to get voiceover work back around, well, I always did some voiceover work. Let's just say that. Around 2014, we're still doing lots of music, always music. But then the voiceover work started to pick up. I did a Warriors commercial with Coach Mark Jackson. So I did that one. And then I got a call from a casting director for Family Guy saying, we need a place to record an episode of Family Guy with Steph Curry. I'm like, okay, cool. And they looked on the website and they saw Mark Jackson. And they went, okay, all right, that'll do. And then when other people would see that, they would see that one. And then one gig begets another gig. They, once they see that so-and-so was here, then okay. Gavin Newsom was here, so Barbara Lee came through, and then Janet Napolitano, for example. And once they see other people, then they say, okay, well, I guess it's legit, and they come in here. So one thing leads to another. Well, let's, let's dig into that a bit. Tell me about what you've learned over the years about running a studio, about marketing a studio, and keeping a studio in business. Okay, well, there's some basic principles that apply to almost every business. The things like the customer is always right, even when they're freaking crazy, right? <laughs> And also by keeping your karma clean, you know, taking care of people. No one's put a gun on my face. No one's held me up. Everyone's been cool. I've never had anybody, like, mistreat me or, or disrespect me or mess with me or the studio or anything like that. You know, I think the basic tenets of every small business, you know, customer service, doing right by people, mm-hmm. right? That's the main thing, I guess. And trying to always, always what can I do to make the studio better? And it doesn't happen in big, massive changes. It always happens baby steps, incrementally, almost every day. What can I do to make it just this much better? I can always have ideas for rewiring and how I can do it better. Mm -hmm. Kind of a signal path architecture nerd, right? (laughs) I'm always trying to figure out ways to do it a little bit better every time, every time. It's been an ongoing process that continues to this day. I'm always fixing things and trying to improve stuff. In terms of the marketing, there's a lot of word of mouth because I've had the domain for so long. You know, skylinestudios.com has just been around for so long. I mean, I've had that domain since 
93, I guess, you know, I think it was when I started it. I've had the same phone number since then. Something I said the other night when we were talking was that, you know, I know a bunch, but I always have to look at this like I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing, but I always know that there's more out there that I'm still learning. I'm still constantly trying to learn, trying to get better at it and trying to figure it out. You know, I didn't go to school to learn how to do an ADR session. I just figured it out. And that sort of fake it till you make it thing Mm -hmm. has been how I did it all this time. And RTFM. RTFM. You know what that means, right? No, no. I'm I'm, You don't? I haven't had enough coffee today to even think. RTFM. Read the fucking manual. Oh. (laughs) I'd have interns come through, right? And I would say, a new piece of gear comes in the studio. What are the main things that you need to know about this piece of gear or Let's say you get here in the studio, the gear is already here. What are the main things that you got to learn how to read a manual? Not read the whole thing, but you need to know how to learn. You need to know quickly what you need to know and how to get to that information fast. Because you may be in a session and you got downtime and you got a client on the couch feeling the hot breath of the back of your neck of, of an anxious client while you try to troubleshoot something. You know that feeling. Oh, yeah. Right? The clock coming to a halt. You're not making any money until you fix this problem. So it's like that sweat of, I need to figure this out. I need to figure it out right now. And how you do that and how you, how you learn how to learn how to do that is really important in sustaining a studio. Well, let's talk about the other conversation we had the other night regarding COVID and how you made it through that time. Because surviving in this business is, that's, a, that's a, an art to itself. So how was your survival leading up to COVID and then how did you get through it? Well, you know, the worst thing for spreading COVID was singing. Just think about it. So it was terrifying at first. I I shut down completely for quite a while and people would call me. I'm like, you know, they're like, can I come to the studio? I was like, no, dude, stay away from infected microphones. And back then, remember in the beginning of the pandemic, we were wiping down our groceries every day. Remember that? Mm -hmm. So- the idea of getting on a microphone and rapping or singing or talking on a mic that somebody had just used, it's like, that was terrifying. I mean, there's no way. So fast forward to, I want to say it was late summer, 2020, phone rings and somebody says, are you on the SAG after list of approved studios for COVID protocols? I'm like, is that a thing? Yeah, that's a thing. All right. Um, no. Well, not yet. Let me let me look into it and get back to you. So I got on the phone. I called the union and said, "What is this thing?" And they said, "Well, we've come up with some protocols, and and you know we're finding a path of how we can safely send actors to studios." So I had to do a bunch of research and figure out a bunch of things and take an online webinar and agree to a whole bunch of protocols. And then once that happened, I got a union gig for a Universal film. And an ADR gig for that, like almost right away. But it involved air filtration and using UVC lights. And at the time, we were still spraying down everything with alcohol. You know, the pop filter and the clown nose and the, the hearbacks and the headphones and the doorknobs and the light switches and all that. You know, luckily, we know better now. We don't do that. We don't spray everything down with alcohol anymore. Although every once in a while I do. <laughs> Just for fun. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're not wiping down light switches anymore. So that was the path to opening. And we still, you know, we would forehead temperature check, 
before they walked in, make sure nobody had a fever, hand sanitizer, take your mask off when you're on the mic after we shut the doors, and then I would be able to turn on the, the air filtration system and the UVC light remotely from my phone so I wouldn't even have to walk into the booth. So that was sort of the path forward. But we stayed masked for a while. We started to take our masks off when vaccines came out and then Delta came along. So we all <laughs> put our masks back on. And we still do all that stuff between sessions, disinfect the rooms and stuff if people have been hanging out. But everyone I know has been vaccinated at this point. I mean, I've, probably almost everybody who comes through here has been vaccinated. Yeah. You mentioned UVC lights. Now, I know what a UV light is. What's a UVC light? You've got to get the wavelength of 254 because that's the one that kills the virus. So see this right here? Oh, okay. I got it on a stand and sitting on a smart plug so I can turn it on from my phone. Interesting. So I got one in every room. Okay. And so I can leave at night, turn it on, turn the fan on, and it will disinfect the room. So if other studio owners out there, if they're interested in that, they just look up UVC lights. Yeah. What does the C stand for? It's not COVID, is it? I don't remember. <laughs> UV COVID light. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, right. No, but if you go into a you know, a hospital setting or medical facility, they're doing it. As long as your filtration is MERV-13 spec, your air filters are MERV-13, and using these UVC lights, you're going to kill 99% of any kind of COVID in the air. Interesting. Okay. That's good to, Good info for other, other studio owners that have commercial places. Well, so... Are you cool with talking about, you know, how you made it through with the landlord and, and all that? You know, would... I, I got real behind in the rent. And finally, after many months, I, I, you know, the phone rang and I saw it was his number. And I just, <laughs> I was terrified to pick up the phone at first, you know, but then we talked about it. And he was surprisingly cool about it and said that it wasn't my fault and that, you know, we'll work it out. Start paying rent regularly again. And maybe over time, we'll go back and figure out what to do later on but I'm not going to commit to anything now. So, you know, I still owe him a, a lot of money. Right. But, I mean, when COVID hit, as the, the thing sustained itself, it was an existential threat to the studio. Make no mistake. It was terrifying. I, I wasn't sure I was going to survive. Mm. But o- over time, I, I started to realize that, wait a minute, there is a path to reopening. And I think that it's gotten real busy because during the pandemic, a lot of musicians were in lockdown mode and creating and not being able to record anything. So there's a lot of pent-up demand out there for people to finish their projects and film projects or podcasts or audiobooks that were put on hold that are now coming back and ready to work. Yeah. Is there anything that you're doing now, let's just hypothetically say that we get hit with another full-blown yeah. pandemic? You know, knowing what you've learned out of, out of this COVID period— Are you doing anything different? Would you do anything different in the future? One of the things that emerged from the pandemic is live streaming of musicians performing. And I had a lot of experience with that from back in the day. Do you remember iMusicCast? Were you around during those days? That's right. I was. And isn't that in the same area that that your place is at? Right. Right. So picture where Mariposa Cafe is. So when you go up to the cafe here in the building... Right there, you were standing at the edge of where the stage was. I had 5,000 square feet. So picture, we had a room about as big as Slim's. And we had two to five shows a week, four or 500 kids, get them in, get them out, four or five bands a night, get them on, get them off, stream everything live on the web. My first webcast was in 1999. Last one was in November 2005. So we streamed shows live on the internet, which was very novel at the time. 
So I had some understanding of how you did that from that whole experience. So when COVID hit, people started to talk about doing live streaming. I'm like, okay, well, I know how to do that. At least I, I can figure it out like I figured everything else out. Mm-hmm. So I bought eight GoPros and a video matrix and a separate encoding computer, an OBS studio, installed that whole thing, got the whole thing dialed, a video switcher. And so we just kind of, in a similar way to iMusicCast, added to all the regular Pro Tools miking up for recording session, we just added a bunch of cameras and we were doing some streaming things. So we added cameras to all the miking up we were doing like a regular recording session. And so we were able to stream with really good sounding audio, unlike a lot of the stuff that was coming from clubs that was a sort of, not a recording studio, let's just say. So is that something that you were doing during COVID and would you do it again? And how does that fit into the world of a pandemic and social distancing? There was a time post-vaccination and pre-clubs opening up where bands needed a place to perform and get good video of their performances and good sounding performances of their of their work. So we did a bunch of shows like that. They're super fun, and we still have the capability of doing them. We still do them every once in a while. And that's, is that a, a good revenue stream for the studio? Yeah, it's, you know, not a massive revenue stream, but it's a lot of work to do that. I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, yeah. There's a lot of moving parts when you do something like that. I mean, when you're micing up a whole band and you're doing everybody live off the floor and then you add cameras on top of all that and everything else that comes along with doing a live stream is just a lot to do. It takes a lot of time. Whereas a simple voiceover thing for an ADR or an audio book or something, it's just one person sitting in a chair talking on one mic, so much easier. <laughs> so I was running a, st- a studio in San Francisco during the financial downturn. And I'm curious how you got through that period of time. Right. Well, as you know, it was a really difficult time. There was no work. Tumbleweeds blowing down the hallway. Uh, it was terrifying. I didn't know what to do. This is at a time when we were shedding hundreds of thousands of jobs every day, right? Mm-hmm. And I go on Craigslist and I, I search for streaming media and found a job posting at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley for a media director. This was to help support their online initiatives to get their classes online. So I interviewed and, you know, out of all the applicants, I think they said something like 300 people applied for this position. And I got the gig because I'd had specific streaming media experience from my music cast. I mean, not that many people applying there could say, yeah, I uh, was a CEO and founder of a webcast production company. So I kind of went to the top of the list of people who could do that. And, you know, I went in there and it was a six month contract, but it helped sustain us. Like that was a a life preserver that helped us along at the time and helped me sustain the studio. Yeah. You know, little by little things got better. But as you know, in any kind of business, especially studio businesses, it's waves. You're up, you're down, you're up, you're down. And having sustained so many of those waves, I don't freak out about them as I used to. Yeah. And you've been through a couple. I mean, the financial downturn and COVID alone are two examples. Two biggest ones. Yeah, no doubt. Those are two things that could have easily wiped you out. Don't forget, remember the dot-com crash? That's right. I started on MuseCast in the middle of the dot-com crash. Oh my God. (laughs) Back in, you know, 99, I was taking my briefcase and going down to Sand Hill Road, Palo Alto, talking to venture capitalists and trying to hustle because I had anything that had Music in the URL back then was, oh my God, this is sensational. <laughs> so, you know, I was trying to, to create this music internet broadcasting company, iMusicCast. 
And then 2000 hit and the dot-com crashed. And I realized, oh, I guess no one's going to be cutting me a check for $2 million anytime soon. So I'm going to have to survive on revenue. Oh, wow. What a concept. So that's how he did it. Uh, you know, I, I'm just fascinated by the fact that you were uh, taking a briefcase. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you're supposed to. I had plans, you know. I want to go down there with a backpack. Come on, man. That's right. You don't want to go down with a backpack. No, I had a backpack. I had architectural plans of how I was going to do this thing. I had the, you know, business plan and schematics and all this kind of cool stuff, you know, trying to convince them that I knew what I was doing. It was all an elaborate ruse to get money. You've been at this for quite some time and a lot of ebb and flow, a lot of lessons learned along the way. So what is, at this point in time, based on what you now know, what is your financial philosophy as a studio owner and just as an audio professional in general? Are you a saver? Are you a spender? How do you tackle the financial aspect of our business? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely a spender. You know, I just, just constantly, you know, saying, well, cost of doing business and just money's just flying out of my wallet. And uh, I think it was Stephen Jarvis who once said to me, yeah, I just touch it as it goes by. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> money, I just touch it as it goes by. <laughs> yeah. I, I always feel like some of these insider things of Bay Area audio lore, I need to explain to my audience who are outside of the Bay Area. Stephen Jarvis, he is a guy who, if you needed to rent some high-end thing in yeah, the past. a Massenburg EQ, a Massenburg mic pre. Yeah. Steven was the guy to go to. Like, he, he's always been the guy who's always had... Everything. Everything. <laughs> right. Super nice guy and big geek, too. You know, big audio geek in yeah. the best of way. So, what about life outside of the studio, work-life balance? How have you managed your personal life as it relates to your audio life? Yeah, well... Let me put it this way. I read a book called The E-Myth many, many years ago about being a small business owner. And they say there's three roles in any given company when it starts. There's the entrepreneur, there's the manager, and there's the engineer. So let's say I've got a bakery. One guy has to say, I think we need to make apple strudel. And one person has to be the guy who says, all right, well, here's how you make apple strudel. He's got to know how to do that. And he's got to manage other people and show them how to do this. So the guy who's actually doing the baking and making the apple strudel, he's the engineer. The manager is the one who says, okay, you do this, you do that. The entrepreneur has to be the guy who has the creative idea of what should happen. So when you're starting a business, you're wearing all three of those hats. And as long as you continue to wear all those hats and do all those things all at once, you won't grow your business. You're just going to grow old. Hmm. So when you can delegate things, and this is sort of a concept of business, not that I went to school for business because I didn't, but any business has these analogies. And if you want to have time outside of the studio, you can't try to do all the things all at once. You have to have other engineers, number one. You have to other people help do things so that I can step away from the studio and the studio can still generate money to keep the lights on. And I don't have to be here 24-7 to make that happen, right? That's kind of an important business concept that applies to, you could be a locksmith, you could be anything, and those basic business principles apply. Your analogy completely makes sense. So are you speaking from experience of trying to do everything and... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hell, yeah. You know... When I think about what I went through with iMusicCast, mm -hmm. oh my God, I still had the studio going and I decided that I would jump off of this cliff and hope that my parachute would deploy and start this video internet production company disguised as a club with no idea how to do anything 
and figure out how to sustain that while still running a studio. Oh, and bouncing my infant son and a baby Bjorn while I was doing it. Mm. I couldn't do it all myself. I had to figure out how to recruit others who supported the vision of, of making iMusicast happen back then. So I had to be able to know how to do every single task in the whole thing in order to teach other people what needed to happen. Had to. Do you evaluate new ideas like that now with, with a view of, hmm, how can I delegate and how can I not do everything on my own? Or do you continue on that habit of trying to do everything on your own? Well, you can't ask people to do stuff if, if you don't know how to do it yourself to a certain extent. Yeah. As it pertains to doing ongoing sessions in here, I have to know how to do everything. I also like to surround myself and have engineers around here who bring other skills to the table so I can learn from them too. Yeah. You mentioned uh, baby boy. So how have, have you managed to keep family happy and keep Skyline Studios happy over these years? Well, let's see, 2003, when my son was born, about six months later, my then wife went back to work. So I had to take my kid here. I'm hanging lights up on a scissor lift. I'm running cable and I'm re rewiring. I'm running around here. I got him a baby born here. And I put him down for a nap. And when I put him down for a nap, I'd just get on the phone. I'd just do a hundred phone calls. And then he'd wake up and then I'd go back to, you know, walking around and doing other tasks. I had to figure out a way <laughs> to do that. And then, then he became old enough to go to daycare and stuff like that. But and now he's 18 and in college. <laughs> I don't know how he did that. Yeah, that's insane. Do you, do you only have one kid? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The kid factor and figuring out that dynamic with your, your partner, you know, is just, it, it can be ultra Rough. challenging if you're both working, for sure. Back sometime in the late 90s, I remember a girlfriend once said to me, what time are you finishing work? Well, the session ends at six. And she says, is that Pacific time or is that... Studio time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess I don't know when I'm going to be done. Of course, 8.30, I'm calling her. Yeah, I'm sorry. I uh, session went long. You know how it is. Yeah. This has been fascinating learning the story behind Skyline Studios and yourself, of course. And the studio is still running to this day. Mm -hmm. We'll put a link in the show notes. I believe it's skylinestudios.com. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can uh, head on over there. Any final words of wisdom to uh, other studio owners out there? I think generosity and helping people has been one of the core things that sustained the studio over the years. Hmm. If there's an opportunity to help somebody, especially artists who are struggling, help deserving artists and always try to extend yourself, over-deliver, and exceed expectations with clients and You'll always get more clients and people will still be coming back. I guess that's why after almost 30 years, I'm still here. Yeah. Well, on that note, Brian, thank you so much. I appreciate you making time for me today. And uh, I'm so glad that we got to meet the other night. And uh, until next time, take care. Yeah. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for. 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Brian Matheson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you have a guest suggestion, you'll find the guest suggestion form at workingclassaudio.com. Head on over there and let us know who you would like to have interviewed on the show. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And uh, until next time, of course, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.